Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm not just writing history. I am making it. I have the brain of a historian and the clapback of a comedian. You better come with sources because I always check footnotes. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. You're here with Dr. J. Mill, the millionaires. Max Spear, hello. Hello, hello. So today's episode is going to touch on issues of identity, belonging, citizenship, incarceration, immigration, deportation. Um, so lots of things to cover with our guest today. But I thought to set up this episode, we could talk a little bit about the differences we see or have seen on Bravo when it comes to these storylines of imprisonment, incarceration between New Jersey and Atlanta, right? Where we have this multi-year storyline with the Judice family. Um, and it really was also a multi-year storyline with Phaedra and Apollo as well. So I thought maybe we could talk about some of these differences that we seen with the way that these cases were portrayed, maybe the way that uh, these storylines were made more or less sympathetic through through the seasons, uh, different fan reactions to these storylines, wherever we kind of maybe want to pick it up. Well, I think one of the things that is interesting um, about Apollo and Phaedra is the fact that, you know, no one really questioned um, – whether or not Apollo was guilty or innocent, there was no no one was making excuses for him. Um, but of course, some of these crimes were the same. But of course, some of these crimes were the same, and they ended up in federal prison together. Correct, the same mm-hmm. facility. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the same facility that they taped Phaedra going to visit. So Phaedra went to visit Apollo on one of the episodes, but you know, and he said he didn't really want the boys there, but she ended up bringing them. Um, well, she didn't want them to go. Sorry, she didn't want them to go. And he felt some kind of way about that. But then if you look at um, New Jersey, Joe didn't want the cameras at the federal prison. And he didn't. And then, of course, he couldn't. Bring, they couldn't be at the deportation center. But he made it 
a big stink about he can't see his family. Actually, they did go see him. They just didn't film him. Right. Right. <laughs> I think that's right. Um, I wonder if that's an issue of like the fourth wall that they're not talking about. Like the, the detention centers did not want cameras in there, but Joe wanted to see his family, but then had to make it seem like they were still... Like, like, the reason was not the cameras. Like, it mm-hmm. seems like it could have been him just trying to make it seem like it was everything else. I don't know. That's just... I feel like through the years, we've gotten way more phone calls from Joe to the family than mm-hmm. we ever had between Apollo to Phaedra. Or Phaedra to Apollo. Yeah. Right. Context. And and this, the tabloids were, were talking about the same thing. You know, Apollo end up, ends up... They divorce. Mm-hmm. Phaedra and Apollo divorced. Uh, Apollo ends up meeting his new fiance. She starts visiting him in prison. So he leaves prison. He already has a, a, a new person. Whereas Joe and Teresa stayed married, but that doesn't mean that there weren't claims of infidelity on either side. Um, you know, there's claims of infidelity with Joe when Teresa's in and Teresa when Joe's in and definitely people were, uh, Peter Thomas was very clear to point out that Phaedra had other things going on while Apollo was um, incarcerated. I do wonder if um, the other reason is that uh, Phaedra is a lawyer and she might have been a little bit more buttoned up about what is shown. And maybe, and I don't know how she was connected to his legal case, if at all, if she was, she might have been or not. She was definitely, she definitely, you know, gave him tips, I'm sure, or talked to the lawyers, I'm sure. Um but that could have also been something that just wasn't talked about, but is sort of in the background of all this causing confusion. Yeah, certainly I think some big differences between Apollo and Joe's timelines, certainly a change in presidential administrations. Oh, yes. Which gets to this issue also of citizenship, right? Apollo was a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, uh, you know, Grandpa Gorga at you know living with Teresa's house has made it very clear that so much of what Joe's issue is after serving his initial 41 months for the crimes he committed is really again all things of his own doing you know because he even got really upset he goes well he never did apply for citizenship this is something we nagged him for years and years and years and years like he never would have been deported if he just applied for citizenship at any of the potential moments he had the opportunity to for all of those years so definitely lots of tension on the show still to come on the show um and certainly some similarities in and some big differences in these different family storylines. And certainly, um, it's really important to note that the Judice family has kind of become one of the most sympathetic families, I think, for viewers. Um, even though it's like really, it's really bizarre, right? That you have all these people that watch Bravo and they feel so bad <laughs> for the for this family, right? But he like he like literally did scam people out of millions of dollars. Meanwhile, there's like kids being kidnapped from their parents and probably will never see them again on the border. But like that doesn't get talked to But God forbid Joe who, yeah, that really bothers me. The way that that gets. Um, but there was also no kind of sympathy like that for Apollo either. No. Yeah, right. And right. again, this is a, this is because the Judice family is this white Italian family. Right. Um, with you know celebrity in a way that 
I don't think Apollo ever had that celebrity status in his own right, the way that Joe Judice built himself as his own Ron celebrity. Well, right, but he was built as the Ron celebrity being, you know, the bad boy. Let's be yeah. honest. A lot of us paid attention to this entire court case because we thought uh, Joe would finally get what he deserves because yes. he was a criminal. He is a criminal. But now it's being... Um, sanitized in a way that the crimes are being forgotten. Right. And it's all about how uncomfortable he is in the deportation center. He's also not being pitted as being as violent as Apollo was, Mm -hmm. even though I'm pretty sure Andy asked Teresa if she was scared of him Mm -hmm. during the the interview. Yeah, we talked about that on another episode, that Mm -hmm. maybe there might be some some abuse of some sort i mean yeah well and joe definitely essentially was working to become more or less an, M- an mma fighter in ice right so like obviously there is this level of of like willful violence too yeah. right or like violence for sport so today's special guest on historians on housewives is dr kumi silva who is an associate professor of communication at the university of north carolina at chapel hill she is the author of brown threat identification in the security state from 2016 and she co-edited feminist erasures challenging backlash culture in 2015. her newest book migration identity and belonging defining borders and boundaries of the homeland comes out in 2020. So with that, welcome Dr. Kumi Silva. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Would you like to share your housewife's tagline with everybody? Yes, come sit with me. I have time for all your nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> so Kumi, you and I go Jessica. very far back, right? In terms yes. of our reality TV, our celebrity gossip, um, aficionado careers. Yes. Yes, we met when we were 12. We met when we were 12 on the cornfields of Champaign, Illinois, where all great things happen. Yes. We walked uphill in the snow each way to school. Uh, (laughs) Yes, we did. Can you you just kind of tell us what drew you to kind of pop culture, communications, and media studies as a discipline? Because you are so (laughs) kitschy. I'm just wondering what actually drew you to all of this. I think I was born kitschy. Um, But... I, I also love how you connected like my love of celebrity gossip with my professional life because you're right, those two are connected. Um, but I have always loved celebrity gossip um, and maybe that's what influenced my discipline of choice in some ways. So I was thinking about this and I, you know, I moved to the U.S. in 1993 and for the longest time, America did not make sense to me. Like, I didn't get it. And then one day as an undergrad, I was like, I was reading Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, um, which, like, I think came out in 1984, 85. And, like, I was like, oh, my God, this makes sense because Postman makes this argument that, you know, the United States and the media currently, it's like Vegas, the entire city that's shiny, that's built on sand and nothing else. Um, and then shortly after that, um, I also read Gigi Bo's Society of the Spectacle. Um, and again, like it was crystallizing all of these things that I found fascinating about the relationship between um, kind of popular culture and also everyday life and politics in the United States. 
I mean, I was living in this little town in rural Pennsylvania, going to school, reading Postman and DeVore, watching Jerry Springer on TV while the Klan was marching on the streets. Uh, and I think at that particular time, I was thinking about a discipline that would, uh, or a field actually, that would allow me to connect all of these realities in one place so that I could talk about all of them and talk about them as interconnected. And um, communication and media studies is that. It's been great. Like I've been able to actually talk about all of the things that I love, which is also not just politics and popular culture, but also geography and space and um, to think about how identities um, are projected or manipulated and how uh, macro micro relationships are framed by like macro conditions. So this was how I came to it, reading Neil Postman in 1993. So when did Bravo become a part of your TV viewing? What is it about the housewives and the New Jersey housewives in particular that keeps you watching? So the weird thing about Bravo for me is that it's not even so much of, of watching as much as I follow everything online. And I don't know if it's like the nerdy academic in me that loves rabbit holes. But once I start watching a clip, I'll like go back to people's great grandparents and keep trying to dig up and find things. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with Bravo generally on several levels. One is that um, Bravo wasn't even a thing, right? Till Andy Khan kind of became Bravo, became the person who became this network that about a decade ago. And then because he made the Housewives franchise so popular um, that it became, its own, had, it has its own life. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I love about Bravo is that it's ridiculous. Like I love the fact that it's ridiculous. It doesn't try to be anything that it's not. At the same time that it has really beautifully kind of managed to take the kinds of things that we find really um, un not, not unpleasant, but like not very compelling and turn them into super compelling ideas and entertainment. Um, so the Real Housewives, I keep watching, it's partly because from the very beginning, um, I have been really interested in the Judiciaries and I find it really fascinating that they have this very strong kind of New Jersey Italian culture that um, they somehow managed to commodify and multiply into, I mean, now it's transnational, right, with this Italian trip. And, and I, I think that is... So sorry for the Judiches, but that's actually a very inter interesting intellectual kind of shift, um, if you will. They've been doing these trips, you know, the housewives go back and forth, back and forth. But now we actually have a family narrative that is kind of transnational. But this isn't the first family narrative that's transnational. Oh, tell me more. Um, there was Carrie Duber um, in Dallas. The whole point of their trips um, a season ago was so that she could do... Um, spend some time with her family and have the women in Mexico. Go with no, Carrie Duber um, 
they went to, I believe, Nor- uh, Sweden. Mm-hmm. Can you tell I don't watch Dallas? <laughs> yeah. So they went to Sweden because um, her father was very, very invested in the Swedish side of the family. She hadn't been. So um, she wanted to spend time with cousins. And then, um, you know, of course, the Ireland trip with Megan King Edmonds was, again, about family genealogy and those family histories and that was the entire purpose behind did going she to ever Ireland. did they ever find her family as they were standing on the street corner in ireland saying how do we find our family <laughs> oh well, my god <laughs> well it was kind of one of those things where they were like uh well actually like it could be like pretty much anyone here right the other thing is that it's already been very transnational because of mexican dynasties Right. With many of those cast members having... And Texacanas. And Texacanas, especially um, with people who are living very fluid cross-border lives. Okay. So, we'll so we actually we actually can't make Joe Judice as that like first transnational. Um, cause, okay. So how do we say his last name? Uh, it depends in- on which day you ask Teresa. On the show, they say Judice. I keep saying Guadice. I uh, said Guadice for the longest time. Then I did like a Google like pronunciation thing and I got Judice and then I am like now I don't know so I just go whatever sounds whatever feels what I feel like doing but I'm trying I'm trying to figure out if there's like a real actual pronunciation also because I can't be remiss to ignore Canada um the whole trip to Canada with Orange County was also because Lydia's uncle was living in Vancouver but here's the thing that I find but here's the thing with the housewives and the transnational aspect is that it's always about finding European or North American heritage, right? Yeah. Because it's not about finding, like, the housewives of Atlanta are not going to go looking for their forefathers because that would be awkward. Absolutely. And we would have to unpack so much more, which Jessica is much better probably at our no, they, actually, am, they, they did that on married to medicine where they went into the caribbean oh. and they actually found the gravesite for um but, relatives but we're conflating but family caribbean. history with actually right. living yeah. people right. that you still have ties with family bonds mm-hmm. across borders right and um, the caribbean is also a different space right like that that also, the caribbean itself is a construction based on slavery that is has an uncomfortable past of its own right so the fact that the Caribbean's connections to the Africas is overlooked mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. instead we kind of go to the Caribbean. Like, I mean, right now the housewives are in Jamaica, right? And the New Jersey ones. Yes. Uh, or on yeah. their way. So, on their way, yes. Yeah. So it, it's like the Caribbean has this, a different kind of, uh, the I don't know, the, the lineage coming from the Caribbean is also different and actually even more complicated, I think, because it doesn't have this kind of direct connection to a continent that it's in its own space without a direct connection to a specific continent. And that complicates things, and I'm not sure what I'm saying right now, but there's something I got there. you. There's an uncomfortability of dealing with slavery in the present or in the, in the distant past. So it's easier to go to the Caribbean and dig up a grave and still not talk about slavery and enslavement versus when they go to Africa and might I say Real Housewives of Atlanta acted complete like complete asses 
And yeah. I mean, just I'm still so horrified about the fight between Marlo and Sheree. But there was no context of welcome home, you know, besides them wearing their clothing, you know, clothing, like braiding their hair and wearing different kente cloths. But there was no direct kind of the closest we got to um, any kind of um, slavery connection is when the Real Housewives of Potomac went to New Orleans. So I hear what you're saying. I absolutely hear what you're saying. Um that was a long. That was a long-winded. I hear what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> no, but I think that's what's really interesting to me about Bravo is that it has been able to capitalize on trends, even kind of progressive trends, and commodified in a way that's palatable to a mass audience, right? So even the transnational aspects, even the immigration aspects, are all about how they how they can kind of tap into this larger political issue, but market it in a way that is appealing to an audience and people can connect. I mean, I was on Joe's new Instagram account um, and the people who write into it, who are so supportive of him, who want him to come back to his family, it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible the support he has. So it's this really interesting configuration of, American exceptionalism through the framework of this character who has been redeemed. And we live in a culture where redeeming white men is a full-time job. Um, and I know that we can go to the argument that Italians have not always been white in the United States, all of that kind of stuff. But there is a kind of redemption narrative attached to his body that is not there in a lot of other kinds of situations in a specifically, like, political context. Or even in the same context with Apollo mm-hmm. from... Um, Apollo Nida. Yeah, from yeah, Atlanta. Exactly, yeah. So... Which, go, oh, go on, go ahead. No, 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 I was going to say, I'm not, like, super familiar with Apollo, so I was just going to say, uh-huh, and move on. Okay. <laughs> Some um, general shady money business, and... Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. So who are your top three Bravo celebrities? How'd you pick them? Um, so def- definitely the Judiches. And um, I love, I kind of love to not love Padma Lakshmi. Um, so does she count technically as like a Bravo celebrity? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like yes. She does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I find her fascinating because as a South Asian like, this is a woman who has managed to uh, whiten herself kind of symbolically to such an extent that the, like, it's her name and, like, there's something that gives her a little bit of exoticism. Again, that makes it very appealing to a large audience compared to other kind of popular South Asian um, or American actors of South Asian descent, like Mindy Kaling, who still very much kind of relies on a different kind of aesthetic and narrative about being of South Asian descent. Um, But Padma Lakshmi fascinates me. Also, about 10, 15 years ago, I think, she had a cooking show on Food Network or something like that, didn't she? I think so. Um, And I watched one episode where she was trying to talk into the camera and cook at the same time. And she couldn't. So she would stop mid-sentence and 
like stir and then start up again. And st- like it was what like watching a train wreck and not being able to turn away. And I loved it. So I have loved her ever since then. Um, and then I watch, I follow a lot of like Jeff Lewis drama around his children. And when he puts like the school on blast and then is mad that the kids get kicked out of the school or the daughter got kicked out of the school. Um, and then of course the Judici is endlessly, like I said, I'm fascinated by them. Okay. Kumi. So, Sorry. No, go ahead. That's my roundup. That's your roundup. Okay. Kumi. Yeah. It's the moment that you and I have been on pins and needles for Chrissy Teigen is an avid Bravo <gasps> fan and her husband, John legend has at times become a plot point in watch what happens live and on Real Housewives of Atlanta. What is your hot take on Chrissy Teigen and John Legend as Bravo-adjacent celebrities? My hot take is that the 45th president of the United States has done nothing good except make Chrissy Teigen popular. And I am forever (laughs) grateful for that. Or perhaps even more popular. More widely known. That That will be his only gift to humanity. Am I allowed to say that? I don't see why not. I don't see why um, not. We've said way more about it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, I mean, seriously, I think that she is um, kind of, her take on the, her, her ability to take on political issues and like her clapbacks are so just amazing that I just, I find her really a, a gift. And I think part of it is that I am also very fascinated and this is completely going off brand, but um, by the Kardashians for very many different reasons. And she's an interesting foil to them because they have a similar uh, kind of, there's a, there's a really interesting Synergy there that is also not um, that is also a very compatible misstep. I I don't know if that even makes sense, but there is this kind of they're friends or have been in the past, and um, but it's interesting to see how like as you know Kanye goes on his own journey, how people have started distancing themselves and. Um, how all of that kind of plays out through a lot of Chrissy Deegan's commentary is really interesting to me. Oh, yeah. I think people could be professional. Well, people are professional trolls and follow Chrissy's clapbacks. Um, and, and John claps back, too. Remember, Don, Don Trump Jr. was talking about um, John Legend being trash because of something he said about um, the, the um, I don't think Donald Trump was the president yet, but John Legend said something. And then Don Jr. was like, you know, what can we expect from an ed- uneducated, stupid, blah, blah, blah. And then John Legend pe- clapped back with, really? I went to UPenn. Kind of like, mm, you. So <laughs> they both have these iconic clapbacks. Um, yeah. So one more thing off brand, because, you know, we've been dying to talk about it, you and I. Um, what do we think about John Legend, the Bravo adjacent celebrity being named by People Magazine as the sexiest man alive. Oh, my God. I don't... I mean, so... 
okay, that's my response. Like I, I like I've been all I've been saying is like, what the f is even going on like, right now? But um, but I think that there's something kind of beautiful about it. <laughs> just like it's very like like sweet. Tell me just to, like yes, sweet. like the it's good guy sweet. wins. Yeah, but it's like I'm also like, is that like people's sexiest man alive Christmas edition, <laughs> like the Hallmark Channel version of sexiest man alive? So, like, I'm unsure what to do with it. What do you think? Like, what could it really be the Hallmark version though? Because we all know that Hallmark has a really difficult time with putting people of color on their screen. I think that's exactly the point. I think he's the right kind of, you know. I think people who don't follow him and look at him just phenotypically but don't know his political views, I think he works for the optics for certain things. But once you know his political views, I, I think it's interesting, actually, that, that, you know, he's snarky, he's educated, he's politically charged. So I'm giving him more credit. No, n- nowhere in there did I say sexiest man alive. I'm yeah. Trying, let's let him... He can wear the Bravo-adjacent celebrity crown. So you're... Edited volume, uh, Feminist Erasures, Challenging Backlash Culture, came out in 2015. Can you tell us more about this project and how do you see Bravo shows as maybe promoting, erasing, or doing something else in relationship to feminism? Are there even feminists on Bravo? So um, that's a really interesting question. And I um, that was co-edited with Katie Mendes in 2015. And um, we were actually kind of hinging the book around this idea of backlash culture and the notion of for feminism that people like Susan Douglas had made really popular, this idea that the media takes control of an image or a kind of idea of uh, feminism and then commodifies it and sells it back to the public. Um, so this idea that everything and anything is feminist and therefore, you know, consumable um so for me i like i've spent a lot of time thinking about whether real housewives is actually something that can be feminist and i think on a very um kind of general sense the genealogy of the word itself is really interesting to me the idea of using housewives because you know since the 1950s um like exclusively describes white middle-class women. So what does it mean to have these women not be a conventional idea of, um, you know, white middle-class women? If, well, most of them are white, but still have like these very crazy lives and they are by no stretch of the imagination, like kind of a conventional understanding of a housewife. Um, they also are, for the most part, super independent. Um, they go on to, they have their own businesses. So in a kind of conventional sense, they are, I suppose, feminist. But I also think that there's a lot of other kind of problematics of using that word, right? And also um, the critiques that have been done, I agree with um, that the Real Housewives really showcase women fighting with women, that this is based on competitiveness, these are cat fights kind of all the cliches are used. So I guess the answer is I don't know if it's, I mean, for me, it's not feminist. It may be for somebody else. Um, but I do think that there are some interesting moments in each 
um, like series or each location that makes things um, kind of compelling and contradict conventional understandings of what it means to be female. Um, at the same time, I think there are like really kind of, and Bravo has been critiqued for this, right? And especially the housewife franchise for how they represent queer bodies, trans bodies. Um, so it's really hard to claim that there's some kind of feminist, uh, kind of a deep feminist ethic in them when they are also somewhat, not somewhat, quite a bit sexist, homophobic, transphobic, all of those, those things. Um, but I think what it does show, though, kind of going off of the work that was done for the book, is that there's a really interesting aspect of why the shows become so popular and why people really like to watch it and why people find these women compelling. And I think it's because they are the focus of the whole conversation. And we so rarely see women as the central, kind of being the center of a conversation or the center of a topic um, in popular media. So I think that that part of it is really compelling and appealing. In, that's uh, oh, reasonable. Ahead. That was no, yeah. wonderful. Mm-hmm. In 2016, your book, Brown Threat Identification, in the security state debuted. What inspired this project? Are there ways that we can see themes of this work on Bravo or on other reality TV shows? Um, yes, yeah, so the book actually came from my own experiences after kind of 9-11 and um, I was thinking about what it meant, like how quickly my identity changed from um, being just like an international graduate student um, to suddenly being marked as a brown body and then how I started reading news stories about all these kinds of things that were happening to people in the streets, in airports, all of the kind of um, that, those ideas um, kind of were the all those uh, events were kind of the genesis for the project. Um, I was also writing my dissertation and I hated it and hated the process. So I was doing this book as kind of a sideline, um, a side hustle, so to speak, and kind of putting things together. And then after I finished my dissertation, I realized I was more and more compelled to go into writing about the stuff I had been collecting and archiving. Um, so I was. I think that one of the arguments I make in that book is that uh, that popular culture kind of medicates the pathologies that we see in political culture, and that everything that feels really scary um, or that's happening to us is then resolved in popular culture. And I do think that in many ways that the that the Bravo series speaks to this, especially because it's so invested in um, reality television, right? And the idea that this is reality and the possibility, like, you know, you have this whole like economic crisis is about to happen. There's an impeachment hearing going on. Um, We are now trillions of dollars in debt, but look at the amount of money these people make. Look at the, the cost of an apartment in New York and what the realtors are making from that money. So it reinforces a kind of um, mythology of 
America that is very comforting. And I think that one of the things I was trying to do in Brown Threats was kind of show that, first of all, that is not the reality for everybody, that this kind of uh, mediated representation is really meant to make a white audience feel better about the world we're living in. And that it also is a way of disciplining brown bodies. And I use the word brown really broadly in that book. And I talk about it being an identity that moves from body to body and it becomes a disciplinary um, kind of product where you're brown not just by the color of your skin, but also by your behaviors. So if you don't behave in a white or white adjacent way, you're quickly disciplined under the changing kind of political landscape and that media is a huge part of that. So what I find really interesting in addition to the reality TV kind of projecting the wealth of America aspect is that even in the housewife series, all of the women, even where there is a largely African-American cast, they still are following kind of white expectations of success and white expectations for aesthetic, for beauty, for how bodies are, how wealth should be manifested, how their houses should look like. All of these things are very much kind of a formula that they follow. So um, I make the argument in the book too that, um, you know, that the Cosby show in some way, like this has been written not by me, but people a while back that the Cosby show was really about showing black people how to be white. Um, and in and I talk about other shows being there that kind of do the same thing. And I think um, there are newer shows that do that. Um, but I think some of the Bravo shows definitely do that too. Like this is your aspirational model. And this is how not to be a brown person who undermines the security and safety of the United States. So I, I understand what you're saying about beauty standards, and you would liken that with ethnicity too. So we have mm-hmm. we have the Atlanta Housewives, we have the Potomac Housewives, we have. Um, are you also saying that they are, are are whitening themselves, or that we should be mindful they, of that? I think we should be mindful of that. That you know what they're doing actually is emphasizing some aspects of the stereotype to cause them to be identified, that make them that allow them to be identified with the popular representations that we know, right? So the fighting, the kind of aggressive fighting where the fights are a lot more physical um, that we associate with in like the TV shows with non-white people are also there in the housewives. And the, the white housewives, though there are some aspects of it physically, the physicality, that's a lot less, that's physical. That's my general take on it. Maybe the three of you would disagree with me and say they're all kind of somewhat physical. Um, but I think that's the thing that it does. It, we don't recognize that that's happening, but I think that is happening. That we use the ethnicity of a the one of the act. Well, they can't be actors, right? One of the stars to to make sure that we recognize them for who they are ethnically in spite of them performing whiteness. I think that this point that you're making about the differences in physicality um, is 
an important one on kind of the behind the scenes what happens at Bravo because I think part of the reason it gets that much more associated with women of color is that when white women are getting physical, no one's being forced sent to anger management, right? Yeah. As, a, as a part of keeping their contract, right? So in some ways the discipline yeah. of these moments is skewed in, in ways that reinforce these stereotypes further. Yeah. So that's exactly, um, that's exactly it. Like one of the things that I, and this guy said this with you that I think, um, what it does is like turn brown people into, um, like palatable individuals for a white audience, but they keep a little bit of the trash part so that it browns them enough to still make them entertaining enough. So, because you don't really, like when, because we are trained so much as an audience to enjoy uh, particular stereotypes, right? We're trained to watch things in a particular way. We want to be able to recognize the images that we see immediately as existing categories of people. And we want to see people who are not white being not white in the way that they have been historically produced as being. Whether it's real or not, it's irrelevant. The thing is that we want them to be like that. That's how, you know, white supremacy works. And that's how the structure works. Um, is that they have to somehow show that they are the ethnicity, that they are physically, that they physically look like. Even so that if they're they are a caricature, not that a caricature, yeah. right? A caricature Absolutely. of themselves. Absolutely. Interesting. A caricature of the stereotype. Right, a caricature of the yeah. stereotype. Stereotype. It's yeah. kind of like W.E.B. Du Bois talked about what does it feel like to be a problem? And I think yeah. uh, Casey's point goes right to that. People of color, uh, Portia, Kenya, wh whoever, they're sent to anger management, right? The black rage yeah. is the problem. It's not that the producers yeah. are inflaming the, anything, right? And kind of um, producing on the fly. Um, yeah. So, and that go ahead. Sorry, sorry. sorry, go ahead. No, that also that black rage is unreasonable. Like right. that is the part that I think always kind of gets to me is that if you are really aware of the history, if you are really holding yourself um, accountable for knowing the history of this country, you would cannot think that any form of black rage is unreasonable, right? And But the fact that immediately these women are disciplined, that it shows how unfair the system is and how unfair the structure is. Because when white women misbehave, it's considered an anomaly. Um, and it's just a misstep. And I think, um, I mean, some of the work I'm doing now is a lot about like what this redemption of masculine, like white men look like. And part of it is that things, I mean, this is like totally off brand, but we even do that by using black women's bodies to redeem white men. Like we use Michelle Obama's body to redeem George W. Bush. Right. Right. So that their friendship somehow means something because look, he has one black friend. So he must be a good person. Not one and black friend, the black friend. That, right? Yeah. Everyone wants to be, wants to be friends with Michelle Obama. Yeah, exactly. So, Kumi, yeah. your newest book, Migration, Identity, and Belonging, Defining Borders and Boundaries of the Homeland, will be available in 2020. 
How has your research interest evolved over time, and what do you want people to know about this project? So this is, a, again, a co-edited anthology that I am uh, co-editing with Mar- the fabulous Margaret France. And she and I have uh, uh, talked a lot about what, like the idea of citizenship and what does citizenship mean. So this book is actually about the, like, how do you, the basic question is, how do you know you belong to a country? And in doing that, we're kind of questioning, like, what are borders? How do borders come to be? So all of the contributors to the collection look at the fluidity of the border in their own context, in their own field. So some people are looking at the legal system and how uh, borders are constructed legally. Some people are looking at their own kind of narratives about immigration and how people kind of go back and forth between countries and what is home when you leave home behind. Um, there are also people who are engaging with um, the col- colonialism in um, the African continent and the splitting up of um, previously existing legal boundaries on the continent that resulted in ethnic warfare more recently. Um, so the book is really an extension, or maybe not an extension, but a branch of an area that I have always continued to be, that I have been interested in and is also leading to my next single author book, which is kind of to look at how um, we manipulate existing structures for the benefit of particular groups of privileged people. Um, And that's kind of where that book is coming from. Um, And it just brings together a lot of uh, emerging scholars um, in the field of mig- and migration and immigration and people who um, are interested in using different methodologies. So there are um, narratives, there are kind of critical cultural approaches. Um, so we're really interested in looking at this one question about how do we know we belong from multiple perspectives. Great, fascinating. We'll all look for it. So we've reached that time in our episode where we have our Bunko Party game break. Mm-hmm. So today we're playing a game called All About the Ronge. And so this is essentially my version of a Ronge trivia. And we're just going to see who Ronges the best. So this is kind of different from games I've created before. Um, but you and Jessica and Max will still be competing against each other. But unlike other games I've come up with before, you don't really have to know things like the season or... Oh, yay. We're going to win. <laughs> <laughs> we being me, I'm going to win. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit more varied and maybe funky, funkier than that. So, do you feel ready? I feel ready. Okay. So, the thing is, we can't... Uh, I'm going to ask the question. If you know it, just hold on for a second. You can say like, oh, I'm ready. I got it. But we have to let... Jessica and Max actually write their answers down. Okay. No surprise. I cheat. (laughs) So that we keep it all on the up and up. Okay. Our first question. Name all four of Teresa's daughters. I know the answer. Why am I writing this down? (laughs) Just to be sure. I'm missing one. How is that even possible in this, this United States of 2019? Mm. I'm ready. I'm ready, too. 
I'm as close to ready as I can be. Just play, <laughs> just play Teresa's voice in your head. That's what I had to do to get all four. Yeah. Okay. You can go first, Kumi. So it's Gia, Gabriella, Melania, and Adriana. Excellent. Gia, Melania, Gabriella, and Adriana. Max. I had Gia, Melania, and then I couldn't remember the other two, so I wrote Ariana and G with a line. <laughs> Close. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who is older, Jennifer Aiden or Jackie Goldschneider? Hmm. Can I Google this? No. <laughs> this might be a trick. This might be a trick. I think it's a trick. I think it's a trick. Do you guys all have a guess? Mm-hmm. Okay, Kumi, what did you come up with? Jennifer Aiden. Okay. Uh, I had Jackie. You had Jackie? I have Jackie, but I feel, I'll tell you why I think it's a trick as soon as you tell us the answer. It is Jackie. Jackie is older. Ah. Okay. Okay. Jackie's a beautiful woman. She just presents as she's older. More mature. Yes. Okay. For this one, I'm going to need the actual full name. What was Danielle Staub's name before she changed it to Danielle Staub? Man, I was just making fun of, I mean, I was just talking about this in an intellectual way. I don't but know. But I want like the, the, like the full. One. I don't know the full answer. Okay. I do. I, oh, wait. Oh, my God. Her last name is like a shoe, a running shoe. Can I say it? <laughs> I'm not gonna get it, Max. Do you need more time? I I'm not gonna get it, but maybe half credit. Okay, so you want to throw it out, Kumi? So it's Beverly Ann, and then her last name is a shoe brand Converse where they make hiking. Sh- <laughs> no, it's like a. It begins with an M. It does Meryl. begin with an M, Meryl. Yeah, Meryl. Yes! Only because Sorry. we lived in Champaign, Illinois, and I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, do I know Meryl. That's the only times I've ever worn them. <laughs> okay, so I'll give you two points for not quite getting the last name, but getting close. Good job, good job. I have Beverly. That's all I wrote. And what did you get, Justin? Did you, you know, just get Beverly, was, too? No, I was on Bethany, Brittany. I knew it was a B. Oh, okay. But I got Meryl. I just love that it's a- Beverly Ann. I'm prompting you about Meryl. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, so Meryl. So I'll give you, yeah, I'll give Max a point for having the Beverly. Okay. Who is taller, Melissa or Teresa? Oh, I got that one. Wait, I think so. <laughs> I got, shall I say now? Is, are you and Jessica? Yeah, I'm ready. That's the, that is what it's like. It's acting, asking like who's taller between me and Kumi. <laughs> that's what I stopped. That's what I was. That's what I just stuffed down. I'm like, mm. okay. What? What? Uh, what's your guess, Kumi? Teresa, isn't she like five eight or five ten? She is actually five eight. So I'm actually going to give you two points <laughs> for knowing that her <gasps> exact height. I w- I would say Teresa is this. This has to be wrong. If she's only five eight. Is that what, did you write Teresa originally? No, no, but I was thinking that. <laughs> I was thinking that. I you was didn't t- lock it in? No, I was too busy, like, holding down the Kumi, Jessica reference, how they're both. Because Kumi 
is taller. Right, but Kumi is the tiniest little person. So I am like an inch taller than you. Okay, how tall are you? <laughs> I'm like five foot three and a half. Oh, you're a lot taller than me. I'm four foot ten. <laughs> so oh. Teresa. So Teresa. Max. I had Teresa. You wrote down Teresa? Yeah. I don't know what to do. Like, Jessica, you didn't lock it in. I don't know if it's like cheating after you heard it's the height. cheating. <laughs> I'm gonna, I so can't. it's really Melissa. Melissa is taller. Is that what you're going to do? Melissa's five six. So they're actually very close. They are really tiny. They're, they're, well, I'm, five, six and five, eight is like above average height, actually. Okay, women, let's but, be honest. Anything over five feet, I don't know what it <laughs> is. But I mean, they are close in height and they're always wearing heels. So I figured it would maybe throw us off. Okay. I thought Melissa's a lot shorter than Teresa for some reason. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's because. I think well, Teresa anyway. also gets her hair like really teased. Like, Big, right? I think yeah, her hair volume. I think her vo- yeah. the volume of her hair yeah. makes her also seem a lot taller. Too. Yeah, that's true. Okay, who has more Twitter followers, Dolores or Margaret? Ooh, that's a hard one. I'm gonna make a guess for that one. I locked it in. <laughs> okay, what was your guess, Kumi? Dolores. Okay, Jessica? Dolores. Max? I had Marge. It's Dolores. Mm-hmm. Now, if you would have asked Marge Sr., or what? what is yeah, Marge, Marge Sr.? If you would have asked that, she probably has a healthy Twitter following. So this is the interesting thing, is actually Dolores and, and Margaret both have a pretty substantial Twitter following, especially if you compare it to, like, Jackie or Jennifer. Um, Dolores has almost 80,000 followers. Oh, wow. Margaret has almost 72,000. But like someone like Jackie and Jennifer are hanging around about the 20,000 mark. Um, Now, Bethany Frankel has 1.6 million. So, show up. Yeah, to put it in perspective. But, uh, and even Vicki Gumbelson has like uh, 700,000. So, it is like a big range on of like housewife followers. But, you know, the re- it's partly because of the coverage they get, right? Like, because Bethany and Gunn-Wolfson Gun get tons of coverage from think- places like People Magazine where I get all my news. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the funny thing is that, you know, Ramona and Vicky have had a feud for years about who's, you know, the most important original housewife. But um, Ramona only has about 500,000 Twitter followers. So at least Vicky wins on social media. <laughs> <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Uh, so they can keep feuding it'll be entertaining for us okay what dish sparked the melissa and Teresa feud oh mm. could we get like couldn't it just be a multiple choice question <laughs> yeah can you do a multiple choice question right it's actually i think a multiple choice question i don't think so because they still talk about it all the time there's even been Bravo News articles this week okay, about I'm going gonna, back to okay. this dish. Really? Yes. Okay, I'm gonna. Um, can I? Say, and about why the dish was offensive. Okay, go for can, it. Uh, Max, are you locked in? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm gonna like is. Never mind. I'm gonna say lasagna. Okay, Jessica. Was it the sprinkle cookies at the Christmas episode? Max? I said lasagna, too. It was the sprinkle cookies. Yes. (laughs) That were on display at the Bravo Museum at BravoCon, which is the only reason I know the answer. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's the sprinkle cookies. And again, Teresa was like, you can't just go to like thrifty and buy a plastic container of sprinkle cookies. Like sprinkle cookies are great if you get them from a bakery. And that's what launched the massive feud. Oh. Yeah. So, because I think they it was like some either some holiday party or it was like some important family gathering. Oh, kind of. Do we also have a beef about lasagna? Am I just stereotyping? Oh my God, I'm doing exactly (laughs) what I like tell people not to do. (laughs) Max, you did it too, so there you go. I did, but my rationale was like, no, there are no buts in this. Oh, I'm going to You're going to butt this? Oh, I'll butt this. (laughs) Well, I do think, uh, well, I, I, I think there's been plenty of holiday gathering scenes too where like they're mm-hmm. actually like they're they are serving lasagna like they various housewives big, in jersey i know that Teresa makes a big deal about her lasagna i think you might her. be confusing her with caroline manzo i might i mean it's been a while since it was all about yeah. the sprinkle cookies because what else would be so ridiculous yeah. you'd be upset about the yeah, sprinkle no. cookies but you're right we were both stereotyping <laughs> okay this one what were the actual crimes the that the Judicis were charged with? Um, I should know these off the top of my head. I know some of them, I think. Do we need to know all the crimes or for every crime? It's like I'm looking a point. For, I'm looking for four counts. Wow. Um, oh, I can't think of two right off the top of my head. Yeah, I have two, I think, I hope. I hope this isn't like the lasagna. Some of them are the same as the parents uh, going to trial for the whole college admission scandal. Mm. Oh, really? Oh, that's mm-hmm. right. Because Terry Which is Salsa also fascinating, it. right? Because they spent so much time in prison and Lori Laughlin got less than two weeks. <laughs> well, Felicity Huffman, not Lori Laughlin. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, Laughlin Felicity Huffman, Lori Laughlin still hasn't been charged. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, went to, and, I went to the wrong and, actress. And Teresa had advice recently for Laurie. Yes. On how to parent through this. Yes. Ugh. Okay. So I, I have, I think, what I have is um, evading taxes for three years and declaring bankruptcy and hiding assets. Okay. And wire fraud. Yes. And I don't know the fourth one. Jessica? I have tax evasion, embezzlement, and fraud. I don't know the fourth one. I only have money laundering and tax evasion. So we had the tax evasion, and then technically there were four counts of fraud, bank, mail, wire, and bankruptcy. <laughs> fraud gets the answer. Yeah. 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 So what did you have again, Max? Money laundering and tax evasion. I feel like I wanted you to be more specific than money laundering. So. Mm. I'm a historian, not a lawyer. <laughs> bank, wire, and what was the other one? Bank, mail, wire, and bankruptcy fraud. Okay. So. So that was like upwards of like five points, did you say? Well, I was looking for the four counts of fraud, but the like the tax evasion too. I was like, well, oh, why not? Okay. I we see. could do that. But the, yeah, it was four separate counts of fraud. And that's why I find it interesting is because some of these counts of fraud, at least the... Uh, Male fraud, especially, is something that's been on the table with everybody accused in the college admissions. So, our points are as follows. In third place, we have Max with six points. In second place, we have Jessica with nine points. 
And our guest, Kumi Silva, wins with 12 points. (laughs) (laughs) So keeping on this theme of the Judices, they bring a narrative of incarceration, immigration, and deportation into these network shows that fans have become incredibly invested in. But how does this family experience take on a different tone than what we would see at the border or in other carceral settings, um, especially because this is a white celebrity family with a degree of wealth? So I I think that, in its, that sums it up, right? They're a white family who are celebrities. And if you just look at the difference in the way that even his post-deportation like or when, when Joe was freed and then the post-deportation interview uh, where he talks about like how he was taken to Italy. Uh, he gives advice to ICE officials about where to sightsee in Italy um, and where to eat at and what to do, right? Like these are, so that this narrative of incarceration is one that is produced as only emotional discomfort of a very small magnitude. And you, it's emotional for the children. It's hard on the family. But we leave out the parts like this does not show the children in cages. It doesn't show the rampant sexual abuse of uh, immigrants who are trying to come in. It doesn't show like the mockery by ICE agents. Uh, it doesn't show the violence by ICE agents. None of that is showcased, right? Again, this is like a very neutralizing, uh, very whitewashed, so to speak, view of how immigration works. And it really does, again, it's like that sanitizing effect, right? Or the medicalizing effect of our existing pathology. This is really quite terrible, right? What's happening in the southern border and what's happening to people what's happening to young children, what's happening to adults, the elderly, the people who are very sick. Um, and none of that is actually becomes part of this narrative. This is this one person becomes the face of a smooth transition. So the American legal system has worked. They, they put the celebrity in prison. He comes out. He did not get his um, you know, citizenship. So we have no, like, nobody is referring to him as a dreamer. Nobody is referring to him as, like, what is the connection between him and other darker, like, other darker recipients who have similar narratives? Like, in the at the same time, like the darker recipients are fighting in the Supreme Court right now, right? They have this ongoing case, and none of these things become part of this narrative. Uh, it's just about the cameras following Joe and then the cameras following the family when they are off the Amalfi court. Like I, I was going through Joe's Instagram account, like I said, um, and there, are, and then I also watched some of the clips that they, they haven't contributed to show the episode yet, right? Where they go to Italy, but they've put out little clips. And in one, one of the kids, I think it's Audrina is, like talking about, oh my God, it's a 10 hour flight. And then uh, because over winter, there is no uh, 
what one summer and there's no direct flight to Naples. Uh, so they have to take another flight to Naples and then a two-hour car ride to where he lives. And all this is like how, like, like everybody laughs about how like stressed out she is about this. Like this is such a long flight. And I'm thinking, holy shit, people are, have walked like for 90 days to get to the freaking border. Like forget a 10-hour plane ride, probably in first class or business class, right? And like you're complaining about these things and these become like really heartfelt stories of reconciliation without any of the death and destruction that we see happening to lots and lots of other people. So um, I think that is super interesting to me that the fact that not super interesting, that's like the most bland way to put it, but um, it's also about like where he went to prison and how we incarcerate celebrities versus other, you know, regular people. Um, and all of these kinds of, uh, un, I don't know, not really real aspects of really serious political situations getting played out is what I find really interesting in this particular narrative of his deportation. What do you make of Gia Judice's tweet imploring Trump to pardon her father so that he can stay in the country? Can you contextualize this within other, perhaps more typical experiences of detention? So, um, Jia Judai had a very interesting, she wrote this very long um, tweet to the, uh, to, like, uh, I can't even remember what the tweet said. I don't know if I have it. Um, oh, it was it, it was, uh, Gia also, but I was also thinking Milania also did the same thing. Um, they both had, they both appealed to Trump. And Milania, uh, so Gia was, Trump, please help us. And this idea that celebrities negotiate with other celebrities, one who happens to now be the president of the United States, and that they can create these, like, the art of the deal, right? Like, the like 45 days, um, is what these kids are also now learning. Like, that they are a special category of people who are above the law. And that has is part of our culture now, right? That, like, we see that in politics too right now. That, like, certain, like, everyone, there are certain categories of people who are above the law. And that these things are learned really young and like Jia is a prime example of that so it's Milani I actually have um, the tweet from here where she says we need everyone's help please repost how could we live in and support a nation that allows sex offenders and pedophiles to stay in the United States as long as we register them to a list knowing they could live next door and harm again yet they could take a man who committed a minor crime to support his family away from his family. It makes me want to leave this country. So talk about like connecting it to how do we know we belong to a country, right? So here's a, a young adult who doesn't realize how citizenship works and how crime works, right? Like if you think your father embezzling money, wire fraud, not paying taxes, is a minor crime done to support your family, what does that say about our society? And like, 
And the fact that you're appealing to this president, and actually in Melania's tweet, she actually says, please help because this is why I voted for you. That leads into my next question, right? Obviously, there's a level of privilege that is um, taking place and uh, lessons that are being taught. So Andy Cohen interviewed Teresa and Joe after his deportation to Italy. And you've already spoke about some of the themes that came about in the discussion. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the criminality, um, some of the themes you saw in relationship to criminality, immigration, and deportation. Um, we could, can you speak a bit about how whiteness is working in this situation? And also, so that's a million part question, but also <laughs> I'm interested as, as someone who's in media, you know, who's pop culture aficionado and who knows in some ways what to look for. Um, I'm wondering if you picked up on any things, um, given your astute read of, um, interpersonal interactions, did you pick up on anything between Teresa and Joe during the interview? So, well, I, so it's, this is a multi-part answer to your question. One is that the dynamic between Teresa and Joe, I have a lot of, uh, I, I believe this is like a giant publicity stunt um, and that all of the conversations between them seemed very rehearsed, um, even when they were doing that interview. Um, but, so that's one part of it. Like, I, I think that there's always reality television always has a narrative, right? Like there is no way that these things aren't edited and an arc is never not laid out. Reality TV is not real. So there has to be an arc to this narrative. And the arc is that say, uh, moving towards separation, separation, but we also, uh, you know, in the United States, we also, uh, rely on and absolutely need happy endings to, these kinds of narratives. So I can talk more about that later. So I this, I think this arc is kind of playing out. The other part about the interviews itself that I thought was really interesting is the way that um, how casually criminality was spoken about in these in that particular context, right? In that interview, other interviews Joe has given, uh, he also talks about like how he refused to wear handcuffs and they told him they didn't. He didn't have to. Um, and it really highlights how. And like I said earlier, like how he gave ICE officers recommendations, restaurants, and sightseeing. And these kind of highlight the difference between how different bodies are treated, right? So think about how take like Joe in this instance, and think about Freddie Gray, for example, right? Like how. Can you insist on you're deporting somebody and you and the guy says, I don't want to wear a handcuff and they let you and they take selfies with you, right? And they, like you allow the, the guy being deported to take selfies. Like, sorry, let me back up. So Joe had selfies taken with the ICE, office, ICE immigration detention officers and he kept saying they were like constantly taking pictures with him. And then... When I thought about that, like, and when I kept, like, I kept going back to that clip and thinking, oh my God, Freddie Gray, like broken spine, handcuffed, thrown in the back. And then also I thought about Dylan King. And I know that there are variations on this, like the Burger King stuff, but the fact that he did get a meal, right? Again, handcuffed very differently. Um, and that's, 
the again incarceration we think of incarceration very differently when it comes to white bodies versus non-white bodies and because the history of this country is so much based on seeing non-white bodies as commodity as a product that you don't have to handle these bodies as carefully and i think that has seeped into every aspect of our culture you know not just uh the police culture but also the way we like interpersonal relationships the way we see uh representations on tv all of these things but whereas in joe's case now you see like the white body that's treated very carefully we can see that even in the political conversations that are happening now right if our previous president <coughs> excuse me had done if our previous president had done even 1/100 of what the current president is being accused of he would be out there would not be any like kind of redemption to her for him um so and i think that you can see even in the way that this narrative is playing out i cannot believe that deportation and i can't believe that deportation and incarceration are major storylines that are bringing people into the show like people are fascinated by this in a way that they are not interested in the reality of these things on an everyday level or even what about the way this is building off of the the point that you just made that joe's on screen with Andy, right? Essentially saying, yeah. well, I'm not a criminal. I didn't belong in ICE, right? Essentially distinguishing like what he sees as criminality, right? So like other people in ICE detention apparently quote unquote belong in ICE, right? But he, he didn't, right? So he even does, this dichotomy yeah. that he is trying to create, we're like, oh, I wasn't really ever that criminal. Like I didn't do anything wrong, but he clearly- and, yeah. But he clearly did. And so I wondered if you could even expand on this dynamic, right? Where it's even almost, you know, oh, white collar crime is not really crime. Well, and that's, again, the history of this country. Like, white collar crime has never been crime because the country is built on white collar crime. I mean, settler colonialism is white collar crime, right? Mm-hmm. So... you if you think about it in that sense you recognize that yes we absolutely bind to this idea that it's not really a crime to do white collar crime and that it's actually a indication of intellect that you're able to game the system and you can only game the system if you're white male straight with money and once you have those things gaming the system is the mark of your uh, superiority and that's what joe kind of keeps claiming right and theresa plays the is the perfect folly to that narrative because her always her defense has been i didn't know what i was signing i'm i i'm just a little housewife i'm i didn't know i trusted my husband i should never have done time but you can't do those kinds of uh you can't be this person who ends up on TV and has this massive contract and is able to market yourself in this way and not recognize 
what your partner is doing and not understand that this is part of like that you're actively participating in this right so it's also again this is how again race plays out here too that white women are able to say i didn't know my husband was like that whereas non-white women are instantly implicated in the act of transgression that their immediate partners or family members do well phaedra can we go back to phaedra for a minute well you don't phaedra and apollo sorry apollo and joe were in um prison together and people might have gossiped or raised their eyebrow that Phaedra probably knew what was going on. But Phaedra and Apollo, they did get divorced while he was in prison. They never mm-hmm. had a meetup with Andy Cohen talking about now you're out. How is this going to work? And so I, I do think that there's a way in which even the attention, like which is, which is the better storyline, right? And yeah. which is, which is the privileged storyline? Um, I just, I just <laughs> thought about that because Phaedra wasn't necessarily criminalized um, in the way that we think that um, people of color are, but there was raised eyebrows and she wasn't in some ways, um, her storyline wasn't, wasn't covered with all this kind of fanfare. Well, and also even the way that fans felt sympathy for the children in those contexts, right? Like fans are like brought to tears on their knees, right? Over the Judice girls, but people did not, what, have right. that same Mr. reaction Mr. To, President and, and, to the two boys that Phaedra has. Right. So the thing with Apollo, I, and also they're not, again, yeah, I mean, they're not white, right? So they, it's not fun to show, like, there is no story in a black man being a criminal because that is the story in this mm-hmm. country, right? So there's nothing, because we are bought into that life so much, that we believe that there is no story there. And whereas this is, oh my God, this family, um, that there's this, part of it is also a fascination we have with Italian-Americans, right? And the idea that, like the history of the Italians in the United States and the uh, history of the mafia in the United States and this idea that the connections between Italy and uh, New York, New Jersey area is kind of on, like that there is this kind of um, narrative that is very compelling, right? Like we are now literally like, it's like watching a iteration of The Godfather, watching on reality television, if you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's also a familiar narrative. And again, it's like a white family, white color crime, or maybe not such a white family, but, you know, enough that because we have been trained to read Italian-Americans in a particular way through films like The Godfather, we're able to see this as a plausible narrative and one that may be interesting for the American public because of that familiarity. Uh, and also because it may potentially end well. Whereas a black crime story well, that's just not going to end well, right? Like, he's just going to go on and have, like, six other children with somebody, like, a multiple number of women because those are the stories that gain traction in popular culture around non-white bodies. Like, stability, intellect. Again, to go back to our John Legend thing, right? Like, people are outraged because 
um, he is not sexy because he is not bad. Because if you okay, are going to be we're talking about my pathology, okay? <laughs> Please don't read me in, to all our subscribers. <laughs> but yes, I hear he's not the bad boy, right? So he can't be sexy. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And if he's black, he should be bad. Like, what's the point right. of a black guy who isn't bad? He's kind of nerdy. He's very nerdy. I mean, yes. he's, he's brilliant, right? Like, he is a really, really, really smart guy. Right. And we like don't he, is, he, is, he is essentially like a really famous music nerd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't expect black men to be smart. Right. Like that's the other thing, right? Where we do, because how can you, like, you know, the whole justification for slavery was that black people were less intelligent. So how can, and that this was uh, the, you know, slavery was a way to lift them up instead of something evil. So, if you, to acknowledge black intelligence is to acknowledge that, like, what white people were horrible. And that's something we're not very good at doing. I mean, in a broad strokes, right? I, mean, mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot of conversations around this, but generally speaking, that kind of spills over to these shows and into popular culture. So the Judice family reunited in Italy in November, and shortly thereafter, um, just even within days of the family coming home, Joe was denied oral arguments in his case. So it's really, really unlikely that he'll win the case, but everybody already knew that. But how might Mm -hmm. these legal battles, his incarceration and deportation, shape the Judice's family's sense of identity and belonging? How do these issues shape people's sense of identity and belonging more broadly? So... I I think for me there's a level of interest in on a, so let me start by talking about the broader levels. I think we underestimate like not underestimate um, people. We know this, but we don't engage with the idea of the amount of destruction that forced separation causes. Right, that there is a lot of trauma associated for families, and many of these families are not wealthy like the Judaizers are. Um, they are also not uh, able to have a voice the way these reality stars have a voice. So I think on the one hand, I appreciate that this is a public conversation and that this is happening about a family's separation, but it's still so very different based of, of very different from the realities of families who are experiencing this, especially along the southern border, because there's none of the violence, none of the brutality that happens daily every few minutes along that border, right? So, um, but I think there's an element of this that's really important for us to recognize that, you know, that this is hard, so hard on families. Uh, Imagine the, the young children, like if, Joe is having a hard time. Joe's children are having a hard time. Think about the two, three, four-year-olds who are in these detention centers, separated from parents. Um, imagine that reality, right? Um, so I don't know if the public generally is able to put those two things together to kind of uh, sympathize or empathize, uh, people who are empathizing and sympathizing with um 
Joe and the family, whether they can make that same connection to the people living on the border. But at least I'm hoping that will open up that conversation. Do you think Teresa will stay with Joe? I, you know, here's my prediction. That for now, this vote is, like I said earlier, it's an it's an arc, right? Like this is the storyline. It will unfold. It's part of the brand. This relationship is very much part of the brand. Um, and they will go on for a while until they will break up and then have some kind of tearful reunion, maybe in Italy. And she will try to make a go of it in Italy and they'll film it all for the show for about two, three months. And then they'll break up. But they're going to age out of this, right? They're already at the cusp of aging out. So I think it would be the perfect ending to the narrative for them to try and make go of it in Italy and for them to break up because by that time, the girls will be old enough to take over the their reality life stories about as children of parents who are in two separate countries and so there's a lot there that I doubt uh, first of all that Bravo or Andy Cohen will give up um, because that family is like a gold mine of stories that can branch off so I guess what I'm saying is they'll, they'll drag this out for as long as they can and there will be a brief reunion but they will eventually probably not end up together so you be, heard it here first. You heard it here oh. first. So there'll be a reunion yeah. episode. I heard about yeah. three spinoff shows is also what you're saying. So the yeah. kids will have a show. Teresa and Joe will have a show. Then there'll be a reunion. There's at least yeah. three spinoff shows. So Kumi, yeah. I have one more question for you as, as our, both of our voices try to hold out. So if Bravo <laughs> did move to a, a new kind of formula, a new kind of recipe for um, uh for um, casting and producing black and brown stories. What what would you like to see? And obviously, what should we be leery of? So I think I would be leery of the way that we take the stereotype and magnify it. Um, and that we should also be aware that we rely on the easiest narrative and largely historical narratives. So um, I know that there's some talk of a show. Is it, was it ever discussed called Indianish of a family? So glad you're bringing this up. Yeah. They, there might have at BravoCon last weekend perhaps been a promo clip for a new show called Family Karma. Where, oh. yes, but we don't have any clips. So I wasn't, we weren't able to kind of talk about it in an informed way. But yes. I know, so it's not Indianish then. I think that was the show that they were, that that was the the story. It was it's set in Miami. Is that right? Of like three generations of Indian. It is. It is intergenerational. It's probably okay. the same thing. Okay, so I I think that again, like this whole intergenerational thing is also very much part of like the Orientalist narrative, right? Like. Brown people live on top of each other. They multiply fast and furious, and then they all live together. Uh, their marriages are arranged. They worry about money. They worry about class. All So these are, like, 
again, that's going to be something that becomes very, uh, I think, common because those are the things we are aware of. So one of the things that I talked about in the Brown Thread book is also how we are really excited about the kind of objects and commodities um, and even maybe people who represent that, like Padma Lakshmi, um, who the products that actually come to the country. So we love, um, and brown us, I'm using like a whole cross section, like if we take, like we love tacos, we love Indian food, we love bindis, we love saris, we love Bollywood, but God forbid that the actual people come in. So I think that, again, what happens is that there is a, a kind of interest in like showing brown people coming in, but who are assimilating generation by generation. And that they look, these people came in like as these like poor brown people, but they have now become assimilated white people. Um, at like metaphorically white. So I would be interested to see how much of that narrative plays out in this new series if it does come to fruition. Thank you. Okay. So now we're going to do our Bravo News update. So, Kelly Dodd got engaged to her boyfriend of three months, Rick Leventhal, who she was set up with by Ramona Singer. Mm-hmm. But apparently Kelly and Ramona are already thinking about having Kelly switch franchises and move from Orange County to New York. Apparently Kelly is genuine friends with Dorinda and Sonia and Ramona. So uh, this is our first bit of news. Any reactions? I mean, I've been yeah. I've been playing with this over and over in my mind that would I like this in 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 New York? Would I like Kelly's kind of screeching and hitting people over the head with a gong kind of behavior in New York? And then I realized she'd be absolutely no different than anyone else, and she's in good company. So if she really has sincere friendships, I think I think I'm interested enough in Sonia and Dorinda. And maybe even Ramona to watch how this could play out with Kelly in the mix. I can imagine she and Luann are not going to get along. Probably not. Uh, well, and I, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, go ahead, Kimmy. Well, I, you know, each, I mean, it hasn't like Andy also commented on the fact that each one of the franchise, like each one of the locations has their own personality yes. and they don't overlap and they don't translate. And so I would be curious in like, like I agree with you, Jessica, that the the screeching won't be any different, like that the screeching will be screeching, but it's a different timber screeching and about different things. And, but I, I also think she's very, somebody who's like very good at like fitting, like it would be interesting to see one of like one of the orange County people, move to New York and see how she changes. I think that could be fascinating. Yeah, I've definitely heard Andy say that um, the shows don't overlap. Although on the most recent episode of Ronj, um, Ramona was just in the background of a party. Um, and they sort of brought yeah, Melissa's her. Birthday yeah, 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 birthday. Melissa's mm-hmm. birthday 40th party. birthday. Yeah. 
I wonder how much of that has to do with um, wanting to get new housewives so that it, they don't have to keep up with old contracts in terms of payment. I think if Kelly came over, somebody like Kelly that's that established on um, Orange County, I think it would cost a lot more than, say, bringing in a brand new housewife. Um, I also feel really bad for Jolie if like all things being equal and Kelly is able to go out to New York, like, like there's a girl in high school being taken away to do or like her mom's reality show. I don't know how you guys feel. It's a tough, it's a tough age to move. Yeah. That would be a very tough age to move. And, And probably a very different high school environment than what you would get in Orange County. I mean, don't get me wrong. I I would love to watch Kelly in Roni. I just would feel really bad for her daughter. Yeah, I think I I would too. I mean, but going back to this, every city has its own personality. And um, I think what Kumi said is great. Could you imagine, because everyone thinks of the West, you know, we're unruly, we're untamed. And then you have the Orange County housewife go to this, you know, um, I don't know New, York, know New York at all, so I can't say if it's Upper West Side, Upper East Side, Lower East Side, Lower. Anyway, she goes to New York, right, where it's a wholly, totally different context, and they might not, you know, her mannerisms might make for good TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it might make for good TV. Sure, why not? I, I'll follow it. The other story also circulating around Kelly Dodd is that Vicki Gumpelson is alleging that this is really just a sham. It's not going to work. It's not going to last. Kind of like fake engagement. Vicky likes to throw bombs to make herself relevant. I mean, she's basically, even as a friend on RHOC this season, has still made pretty much the first half of the season all about her. I don't put much stock in that. Well, Vicky is also somebody who was recently engaged to even yes. stay a friend of the show. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, even if it is a publicity stunt, it's not like it hasn't been done before. Yeah. Um, I mean, need we point out Brooks's cancer scare? Vicky is not immune from, you know, fabricating yeah. storylines. Yeah, the yeah. entire line of I just wanted a casserole is literally the definition of like. Fabrication. I want, yeah, fabrication and I want attention. Yeah. I mean, she was right almost to the day for Megan and Jim Edmonds divorce, mm-hmm. but I I don't know if I credit her with that kind of premonition in all cases. That's our Bravo news. So Kumi, tell us what's next for you and what do you want people to know about your upcoming work? How can they get in touch with you if they want to know more? So my next book project is on love and cr- the relationship between love and cruelty. Um, which is why the whole immigration thing, even around the she dies, is, is so interesting to me. Is that we only know the extent we only can measure love by the extent of cruelty enacted on bodies. Um, so that's the next book project. I, if you have information and want to talk to me about all things connected to love, cruelty, popular culture, anything else, you know, going back to the tagline, just come sit with me. I have time for all your nonsense. So. Um, you can reach me at kumi at email.unc.edu. I'm also on the Department of Communication website. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter occasionally 
my handlers, I see brown people. Um, <laughs> it truly is. It, and uh, yeah, it's pretty easy to track me down. Um, but only for good stuff. I do not want to be tracked down for to tell me to go back to where I came from and stuff like that, which I sometimes get because of things I talk and write about. Oh, that's awful. So, but yeah, if people oh, want to like message you, like, did you see this Joe Judice story? Like, you want that. I want that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose episode topics, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. We live tweet Sunday through Thursday. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. Thank you, Dr. Kumi Silva. This show is brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gamberpour, Judd Merlaski, Pete Murray, Yvonne Velardez, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Kim Bettendorf, and Louis Osio de Dios. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Oh, wait, is this it? Yes, I found it. Holy shit. Okay. Oh. Are you starting to see why she's my friend? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I, um. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.